one of the one of the things that uh, Sasha prayed about, Greg and Lucy are here this morning, they've recently moved uh, to their new apartment that they've been waiting to get built for a while and Greg's, Greg's mobility has been reduced and he hasn't been with us as much as we would like but he turned 70 on Friday and it's great to have Greg and Lucy back with us as a 70-year-old man too, Greg. Good to see you. It's been really a, really a joy to have you with us in the fellowship. Let me pray. Father, help us to hear your word Help us to conform our lives to your word and give us confidence in your word even now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> doubt is easy. Anybody can doubt. In fact, if you want to see something grow, you could go and plant a garden, but that's much, much harder. Just sow a seed of doubt. It is so much easier and you will... If you sow it in fertile soil, that doubt will grow. It's kind of like a cancer until it takes over everything if you let it. It is so much harder to be certain. So, you know, in court cases like Jared Baden Clay up in the case up in Brisbane, the prosecution has to have a watertight case. The defence just has to sow doubt. They just keep sowing doubt to try and break down the watertight case so that someone may get off. If you are cynical, you are someone who specialises in doubt. And that's great because cynics like to feel superior. As they commit themselves to nothing, they become self-assured fence-sitters who laugh smugly at the naivety of those who surround them. But cynicism is the soft option. Most often cynicism is for the weak. It takes far more courage, far more conviction to say that I am certain, that I am sure, that I have confidence. Now Christians believe certain things about God and our relationship with him through the person Jesus Christ. We claim that we can know God, that he's revealed himself in his word, the Bible. See, we are people of conviction. And therefore, being people of conviction, even though there may be doubts, we put our trust in what we know and are sure of. And therefore, we're open to attack. And Satan will be sowing always seeds of doubt. And if doubt finds a place within a church to set seed or within a believer's life to set seed, if it is watered and fed, that doubt will grow. And as doubt grows, so uncertainty grows, where previously there was faith and assurance. Whenever this happens in the life of a church, we need to weed out the doubt that was sown. And we need to strengthen the true vine that was planted by God's Spirit. 1 John, John's first letter, is written to Christians who are being tempted to depart from the truth by those who have entered the church and are sowing seeds of doubt and error. John is writing to expose the error and weed out the growing doubt that these believers might find renewed assurance. Now today we've come to the very end of this letter. I've done it in two series. But today we're at the end. 
of our series, Live Life, Live Love Life, because that's what John wants. And John, I think here, is saying at the end, you can be certain that you can live, you can love and you can find life. You can be certain of these things because of God's love and life for you. You can be confident because you have a guardian for your soul. Now, back in chapter 4 where we started this series, we really came to the high point, the mountaintop in John's little letter. John chapter 4 verse 9. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. There is the mountaintop in John's letter. And since that point, point, John's kind of been winding back down the mountain as we've been joining him and he's been drawing all the threads of his letter together. Verse 13 of chapter 5, this last little section, the NIV, my Bible translation, has a heading, Concluding Remarks. Because John is indeed here in this passage wrapping up. And he tells us exactly what he's doing. He tells us exactly what his motive is in writing. He writes to give Christian believers assurance. Have a look at verse 13. He's telling us exactly what he's doing. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. I'm writing to give you assurance that you have life eternal. Now how great it is to be confident of something, to have assurance. How debilitating is when you're overcome by a sense of doubt and weakness. You know, if you're, if you're out playing football and someone kicks the football and you're playing at footback and the football's coming towards you and you have to catch it, if you doubt, you're probably going to drop it. If you're standing over the golf ball and you've got to hit it up the fairway, and this is the big difficulty with golf, if you doubt... If you feel confident, you've got a far better chance if you just feel relaxed and confident and whack it. Doubt just takes everything away. And, and that's in the, on the sporting field. What about in matters of life and death? There was an earthquake in Taiwan. Say you've got a friend who lives in Taiwan. If Christine was there in Taiwan, you can imagine her family. I wonder if she's okay. I wonder if she survived the earthquake. And then you get the phone call. Hi, Mum. It's Christine. I'm fine. Oh. The doubt is gone. Assurance comes. Something's been wrong. You've gone and been to see the doctor. The doctor's run some tests. You think it might be serious. You sit there waiting for the tests. You're barely sleeping at night. Then the phone call comes through from the doctor. Listen, the test results are back. It's just so-and-so. It's nothing serious. Oh, now I can sleep because I have certainty. Now my doubts are dealt with. Sure knowledge, sure hope brings peace and joy. So it is with Jesus. In fact, just before this passage, John writes, this is the testimony God... This is and this is the testimony, God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. 
He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. That's quite straightforward. John's been saying this all along. Chapter 3 wants us to have assurance. Chapter 3 verse 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what you are. Wow, that's assurance. Chapter 2 verse 28. And now dear children, continue in him, that is in Jesus, so that when he appears we may be confident and unashamed at his coming. I want you to have assurance if you continue in him. Chapter 4 verse 17. In this way love is made complete among us so that we may have confidence on the day of judgment. Because in this world we're like him. I want you to have confidence. So now as John comes to the end he writes in verse 13 I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Oh yes, I've got that confidence. Confidence in the Lord Jesus. Now how do you know at a very simple relational level if you're confident with somebody? Well, I think it's pretty straightforward. You trust them. You feel accepted by them. There is no fear. I feel confident with you. If you feel confident with someone, there's an ease in relationship, yes? There's therefore an ease in communication, in talking. We can just sit and we can just chat. If I'm not feeling confident, if I don't trust you, sit there staring. How do we know if we have confidence with God? Well, a confident Christian is a praying Christian who talks to God. Look at verse 14. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. That's the confidence. The confident Christian is the praying Christian. And our confidence as Christians, our boldness before God is so different to what the world understands as confidence or boldness. See, the confident person in our world is the self-assured person. The confident person doesn't need help. They face life with a sense of eagerness as they trust in their own capacity. The confident Christian, the person who knows they have eternal life, by contrast gets down on their knees and prays to the Heavenly Father saying, You do the work. I am weak. You do the work. We approach God boldly. We approach God freely confidently bringing anything we want before him, saying, you do the work. Because we recognise that God is God, we approach with humility and in subjection. Do you get this confidence? It's boldness with humility. It's confidence with childlike submission. It's expressed in prayer. And so prayer, is very important, is not an attempt to get God to see things my way or to convince God to do the things that I want him to do. Prayer is submitting ourselves to God's will. Trusting God. The Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
Not my will, Father, but yours be done. The heart of Christian prayer is this bold humility. Not fearful, not tentative, not, Oh Lord, I wonder if you'd approve if I'm asking. No, it's confident asking according to God's perfect will. This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. We pray, we seek to pray in accordance with God's will. Now now that's not an escape clause or a loophole in our prayer life. It should not lead us into a tentative prayer life. Lord, I'm not sure if I'm praying according to your will, but John's not saying watch out in case your prayers aren't heard because they're not quite right. John's saying, I want you to be so confident, I want you to be so assured in your relationship with God that you pray boldly, submitting yourself to his will. Asking for what you want. Trust in him, not yourself. He knows best. But do it boldly, brazenly. Trust in God. Because the more we pray, the less self-willed we become and the more we enjoy our relationship with God and seeing Him, His hand at work in our life and we grow in confidence. So the confident Christian, which we should all be, will be the praying Christian and the praying Christian is going to be the Christian who prays for his brother and sister in need. And the greatest need we have is our struggle with sin. See, here is Satan's ploy. Satan wants to take this sort of assurance that John is writing about away from us. Satan wants us to be nervous before God and our relationship with God. He's always trying to lead us astray, to to turn us from light to darkness. He's trying to sow seeds of doubt, hoping that some will find a crack in the armour and take take root in fertile soil and grow and become like a cancer. And we all struggle with these things. We all struggle with sin. How do we struggle? How do we engage in warfare against the enemy? Well, not by relying on our own power, but by standing on the promises of God in Jesus Christ. So if you see your brother or sister falling, struggling with sin, what should you do? What's the first thing you should do? You could feel smug. Oh gosh, I thought so. I didn't think they'd last or whatever, you know. Thank goodness I'm not there. You could do that. Lots of people do that. You could, you could rush straight in. Brother, sister, stop. That might be helpful at certain circumstances, but you know what I think you should do first? You should step into the breach and pray. Ask that God will help them. Verse 16 and 17 in this passage are difficult verses. I don't know if you heard them as it was being read by Arun. But I think they teach us that our first response should be to pray for our brother or sister who is struggling with sin. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying we should pray about that. 
All wrongdoing is sin and there is a sin that does not lead to death. Now the big question there obviously is what is this business about a sin that leads to death and a sin that does not lead to death? Well firstly let's establish some boundaries so that we know what we're dealing with. There is nowhere suggestion anywhere in scripture that there are pardonable and unpardonable sins that we can distinguish between the two. Venial sins and mortal sins as some may say. In the Bible's view every sin is a mortal sin for the wages of sin is death. Every sin is mortal. We can't determine which ones lead to death and which ones don't. So let's set that boundary. Secondly, Jesus, John is writing to assure Christians to give them confidence not to disturb them, not to leave them feeling insecure, not so that they'd be saying, oh, I wonder if I've committed the sin that leads to death or I've not. That's not John's intention. He wants them to be confident and assured. Third boundary. There is not one sin, not one wrongdoing you can do that is not covered by the blood of Jesus shed on the cross as we remembered at Communion. There is not one sin that Jesus' blood, the Son of God's poured blood, is not powerful enough to cover. There's pretty big boundaries, aren't they? In fact, John said this, chapter 2, My dear children, verse 1, I write this so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defence. Jesus, Messiah, the righteous one, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours but also for the sins of the whole world. That's pretty emphatic. John's already said that. Chapter 1 verse 7 If we walk in the light as he is in the light we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son purifies us from all sin. Chapter 1 verse 9 If we confess our sins he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You get the point. Big boundaries. So what then is this sin that leads to death? Well, let me ask the opposite question. What response of the heart, what leads to life? Now, if you've been reading John's letter and you've been remembering John's letter, that's pretty straightforward too. What leads to life? Chapter 2, verse 24. See that what you have heard from the beginning about Jesus remains in you. If it does, you will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, even eternal life. Chapter 5, verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Chapter 5, verse 11. And this is a testimony God has given us eternal life and this life is in the Son. He who has the Son has life. He who has the Son does not have life. It's pretty emphatic. Life is found by believing in Jesus, come in the flesh as the Son of God. He is the eternal life giver. Now if life is only found in the Son, by believing in the Son of God as Jesus who came in the flesh, What leads to death? He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God 
does not have life. That is rejecting the lordship of Jesus, failing to put your trust in the shed blood of Jesus and his resurrected power, refusing to believe on his name leads to death. See, the sin that leads to death The sin that excludes the sinner from the life of God is the rejection of the lordship of Jesus and a refusal to believe on his name. Because when you do that, you reject the only means by which your sin may be forgiven and you may be given eternal life in Jesus because you reject Jesus, the life giver, the son of God. See, it's not that sin is unpardonable, for the cross can wipe away every stain, as John has said. The problem is that the sin that leads to death is to reject the only means by which we can receive pardon. That is Jesus himself. So, verse 16, let's read that again. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death... He should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying he should pray about that. John wants us to pray confidently for the Christian brother or sister who is erring that they may be given life and restoration. You see a Christian brother stumbling, you see them falling, Satan's telling them a lie, their life in Christ is declining. We might say, to use a phrase, that they're backsliding. You need to resist, you need to pray that God might give them life. And that will be a prayer in accordance with the will of God. One you can always pray with confidence, knowing God will hear you. We're all good at spotting error in others, we're all good at spotting the brother falling or the sister falling, oh, that we might be people with such love and such passion for souls of our fellow believers that without a hint of pride, when we see our brother or sister stumbling, we would feel a heartfelt burden to uphold them in prayer before the loving God, that we would pray that the seed of doubt might be removed from them and that we would love them and encourage them. And maybe then... Step in to challenge with gentleness or rebuke. I don't know how your prayer life is at the moment, but I wonder who you're praying for in your Christian faith. I wonder which of your brothers and sisters you're praying for. It's an important thing that we pray for the brother or sister who is struggling. Pray that doubt is displaced by faith. Because the Lord Jesus will not let any of his children fall for he is the guardian of their soul. So John finishes. He's sort of gone through this little story, little, little thing that, um, about confidence expressed in prayer particularly for our brothers and sisters who might be struggling. And then he has three statements of absolute confidence, of absolute knowledge that we have as believers. What do we know? What can we say amen to? Well, verse 18, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who who was born of God keeps him safe 
and the evil one cannot unharm him. That's an uncompromising statement. Now John is never not saying that a Christian will never sin. He's already acknowledged that Christians will sin and that we have an atoning sacrifice, that we can be, confess our sins and be forgiven. What he is saying though, and you must hear this, is that the Christian cannot go on continuing to sin brazenly that they should not persist in sin as a habitual habit. John Stott puts it this way, and I quite like this. Sin and the child of God are incompatible. Incompatible. They may occasionally meet, but they cannot live together in harmony. There's a challenge for you. They may meet, but they cannot live together in harmony. Where is the harmony or the discordance in your life? And what need you do to make the discordance the discordance that it should be? And restore yourself to harmony with God and his spirit. The Christian sin and the child of God are incompatible. They may occasionally meet but they cannot live together in harmony. We should have this ongoing battle within the nature of us between the old sinful nature and the newborn nature. And if you have that ongoing battle, it's frustrating, it's challenging, it can at times disappoint, but you are safe and secure for you have a guardian of your soul. Jesus, the atoning sacrifice for sin. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God, that is the Lord Jesus, keeps him safe and the evil one cannot harm him, cannot even touch him. Therefore we pray with confidence because we have a guardian. Jesus says in John chapter 10, I give my sheep eternal life and they shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given them to me and he is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand and I and the Father are one, says Jesus. Security. When you feel that discordance, when you feel that battle and you're seeking to follow God's Spirit, obey and give thanks and trust Jesus because he has you. Don't give in to despair in your struggle with sin. Second thing we know, we know that we are children of God. See, there's confidence. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. See, we know that we are different, that we are secure and we are different. There's a great distinction. The world literally lies in the evil one, whereas we are in Christ. Secure, guarded and protected. We need to understand that distinction and see the oppression of Satan, the hopelessness of the world and pray that people might see the light in Jesus where there is only death without him. But for us, we are secure, the children of God who trust in the Son of God, who have life. The last we know. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true even his son Jesus Christ, look at listen to this last phrase, he is the true God and eternal life. We know that. We know that we're in him. 
We know that he is the true God. We know that he is eternal life. John's just going, do you know these things? I've written five chapters. I've written this big long letter. I'm just about to finish. Do you know who you are in Jesus Christ? The true God and eternal life. We know God by being united to him through Jesus. God's our Father. We, his children, This we know. I keep quoting that great kid's song. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Do you know it? John wants you to know it. He wants you to have life. He wants you to live. He wants you to love. He wants you to have life in the Son. He wants you to know these things. And that is where we end. Almost. You've been to the Blue Mountains. Some of you may have been to Uluru, climbed it. I don't know, you're not supposed to climb it. So I've never been there. I've never had that ethical dilemma. We had our boot camp last week and uh, we walked from church here all the way to Crosslands Reserve down the Great North Walk through the Barara Valley. On the other side of Galston Gorge, we missed a turn-off. I think we should have gone up some steps and we went straight ahead. And the track started to get narrow and bushy and it was all cool. But then you started walking along almost the cliff edge. Remember there's one little spot there where you sort of put your arm around this tree and you go around the tree and there's leaves and you go, oh, it's okay. Is this the Great North Walk? We're all, all 23 of us, we're scooting along. I'm not a huge one for heights. I'm better with heights than with storms for those of you at boot camp, but I'm not a great one with heights. Um, but as long as I'm standing on the rock, I'm safe, right? You go to the Blue Mountains, look at this. as long as you're standing on that rock, you're safe. Chances are you could just take a step and fall over. And I've got Felix walking behind me. I don't know if I can trust him. He could just push me like that. <laughs> you never know. But as long as I'm standing on that rock, I'm fine. John is writing to struggling Christians saying, stand on the rock. Jesus, the guardian of your soul. Yes, Satan will attack. He's going to try to rob you of your confidence, but he's been defeated. The victory is faith in Jesus. His kingdom is a sham. His kingdom is crumbling and cracked and it's soon going to come crashing down. We stand on the conquering king, the guardian of our souls. Son of God who came in the flesh and poured out his lifeblood as an atoning sacrifice for our sins so that we might become the children of God. And that is what you are, says John. We must obey him and love him and out of this love others. Now an idol is anything that we would put in this world our trust and confidence in. And therefore it's anything that would displace our love and trust for the one true God. Let me see, tell you what an idol is. I'm doing the false Great North Walk, going round the tree with some loose leaves on my left and I say, I can trust in my own balance as I tippy-toe on the edge. Actually, it's worse than that. I'll tell you what an idol is. It's when you're doing the fake North Walk and you say, I can trust my wings and you step off the edge. That's what an idol is. 
You're going to trust your ability to fly as you step off the rock? The very last sentence. In John's letter, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Stand on the rock. An idol is lifeless, whether it's your career or your house or your car or a relationship. Most idols that we embrace are good things. Even in the old days, when even, 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 even you know, what a beautiful statue, all made of gold or covered in gold. What a beautiful thing. Yes, it's beautiful. But you're trusting in it. You might as well try and fly to the moon. It's just a piece of dirt. You take a beautiful thing and you worship it. Dear children, keep yourself from idols. Stand on the solid rock. Stand with Jesus. He is the true God and eternal life. He is the guardian of your souls. Live, love, life. Follow Jesus. Amen.